you have a Bible, you can turn in the Old Testament to Psalm 16. going to select a text from the Old Testament to turn the world upside down as a sermon. Psalm 16 would be a divinely inspired choice as it is the text that Peter preached on the great day of Pentecost when the world began to turn upside down. So we direct our attention to Psalm 16 and then to a portion of that great sermon on Pentecost highlighting the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the kingdom that has been ushered in. Lend your attention, this is the very word of God. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad, my whole being rejoices, my flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life, in your presence there is fullness of joy, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. You can turn in the New Testament to the book of Acts. Taking a selection from Peter's sermon that day. And reading verses 22 to 32 of chapter 2. This is the very word of God. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourself know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. 
you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. May he lend his blessing to it. Join me in prayer. Father, your word declares a wonder that on the third day Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. Such things are too high for us. They're too wonderful. Who has the tongue and the mind to declare such a thing? And yet, your spirit empowers such a witness as Peter himself stood up and declared the truth of these wonders. And not just the truth of these wonders, but the blessedness that these wonders have brought about for your people, those dwelling under the oppressive regime of death, generation after generation going the way that we all must go and remaining under its power. But the Lord conquered. So as we declare this word this morning, grant my frail mind and pitiful tongue the ministry of your spirit that as the truth of these things go forth, Hearts may be cut to the quick. Eyes may fill with wonder at what you have done in your Christ. What Jesus has done in making satisfaction for sin and ushering in eternal blessedness for those who were ruined, lost, hopeless, and helpless left unto ourselves. Magnify your name even now. For we ask in the name of the resurrected and exalted one, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Children, do you remember the story of David and Goliath? you know the story of David and Goliath? Who was Goliath? He was a soldier. He was a Philistine. But he was also a monster, wasn't he? And that's what a giant is. A giant is a monster. I mean, kind of a human, but not really human. It's a monster. And he was terrible to behold. He was really scary. This monster would come out day 
by day, and he would scream in, a, in an awful voice, somebody fight me. Send out somebody to fight me. And he said this to the greatest warriors among God's people, all of them, remarkable. But they were afraid. Do you think you would have been afraid to see a monster with a sword, armor, a shield? He was kind of a metal monster, an iron giant, but without the heart of gold, if you've seen the movie. This metal monster challenging, defying the armies of the true and living God. Do you remember what David did? Was David afraid? David wasn't afraid, but it wasn't because David was stronger. If you read the story, it's plain that David is not stronger. It's not insignificant that this great battle takes place not after David is a seasoned warrior, but as a child, noticeably disadvantaged on the field of battle, without the weapons of this impressive warrior. David wasn't afraid, not because he was stronger, but because he knew that God was stronger. He knew that God was more powerful than the fiercest enemies who would ever arise against the people of the true and living God. And so what did he do in faith? He went out to face an unbeatable giant. And the two faced off on the field of battle with the fates of both sides hanging on the result. This is what we call champion warfare. It's rare in the Bible. You see it as, say, Hector and Achilles face off before the gates of Troy. But in the Bible, it's pretty rare, champion warfare. But we see it here in David and Goliath, where the fates of both armies hang upon the result of these two champions doing battle. And what happened? Who won? Well, David won, kind of. <laughs> David won not by sword or spear. David won not even really by five smooth stones and a sling. David won by the power of the true and living God. Not by might, not by strength, but by my spirit, declares the Lord. So really it was God's victory that day though he was pleased to use his servant, David. All sorts of enemies arose to threaten God's people throughout their history. Pharaoh in Egypt, Sennacherib and Assyria, Goliath and Philistines. But standing behind these terrible enemies was one more terrible still. Heidelberg Catechism, question 45, opens by saying, By his resurrection, Jesus Christ conquered, not Goliath, not Sennacherib, not Ashurbanipal, not Nebuchadnezzar, not Tiglath-Pileser. These are demigods in the old world. But death. He conquered death. And it suggests a champion warfare similar to what we see on the field of battle where David and Goliath arranged themselves against each other and the outcome of the conflict between the two champions determined the fate of those whom they represented. 
A giant monster stands before the whole world with its mouth agape, one lip to the sky, one lip upon the earth, swallowing everything that comes its way and casting a seemingly endless shadow. And then a champion steps forward, greater than his earthly father, David. For David defeated Goliath by the power of God, but David died. And so did David's great son, Hezekiah. And so did David's great son, Josiah, the best of David's sons, as excellent as they were on the field of man, they too were swallowed by this monster until the Lord Jesus Christ appeared. And he remained under the power of this monster for three days. And all seemed lost until all was one. And on the third day, he rose from the dead. And it became plain that this was a person like no other. This was a person whose worth excels all others. Both in what he did that day, when he put off death like a garment. When he shook off death like strips of linen. <laughs> but also in what he continues to do as the resurrected Lord. For we serve the crucified Christ who now lives. We serve a king who is living even now, who continues to manifest the excellency of his person, not just in that he conquered death that day, but also in that he continues to bring in more and more to share in that victory, which we in and of ourselves have no hope of gaining. For we all must go the way of this monster left to ourselves like David, Hezekiah, and Josiah, we will fall. For only in the Lord Jesus Christ does this gaping beast become a toothless monster as the grave revealed its secret, emptiness, a monster who had been plundered as Jesus Christ rose triumphant from the grave. That's quite a glory. Do you know what glory is? We use that word a lot. Glory is the manifestation of the excellency of a person. Glory is the manifestation of the worth of a person on display in works. What he did. What we continue to know that he is doing. So we consider the glory of Jesus Christ this morning in what he did that day, that resurrection Sunday, and what he continues to do as the resurrected one. So first, the glory of Christ in what he did, the excellency of Christ on display in doing what no one had ever done, in doing the opposite of what everyone has ever done. <laughs> Namely, not dying and never dying again. By his resurrection, he conquered death. 
That's the heart of Peter's sermon. I suspect the weight of this will not fully land upon our hearts until we come to the gateway of death. So in some sense, you're just going to have to stick this in your back pocket. Because when you have to face that monster, you are going to be delighted that the one who has conquered that monster holds you by the hand. That's the heart of Peter's sermon, Acts 2, 23 and 24. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. That is remarkable. I'm going off book here because I'm struck by that phrase. It's not possible for him to be held by death. It's not possible for you to fly. It's not possible for you not to yawn during this sermon, seemingly. It's not possible for him to die. It's not possible for you to remain alive. It's not possible for him to die as true man. That must have been a stunning opening statement. I, I work all week to try and fashion an introduction that will get your attention because I know that you're dull of heart and dim of mind and you're not convinced that God's word is listening to just because it's God's word. So I have to do this song and dance where I try to get your attention to convince you, hey, the next 45 minutes are worth tuning in. And here's a little picture. Peter opened his sermon saying, hey, this, this one that you killed, yeah, it's not possible for him to die. I was like, tell me more. This is remarkable. He says it's not possible for him to die. The image he uses here are of cords binding someone. It pictures death as unbreakable bonds, like a mummy. You've seen mummies. You've seen the constriction and how they remain like that forevermore, in a certain manner of speaking. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy, the Righteous One, the author of life, bound by these cords for three days, and then God loosed them. A greater power than even death said, release. A greater authority than death's unbreakable word said, no, you have no claim upon this one. Not now, not ever. The death, he died, he died once for all to sin, such that sin and death have no claim over him. Why not? Why was it impossible for him to be held by death? Other seemingly worthy men and women have been bound by these cords, but they didn't rise on the third day. They remained under the cords, they remained in the bound, so why Jesus why was it that death had no power, no authority over him? This is a complicated question. Peter's going to answer it from various angles. If you read the sermons of Acts, he's really kind of unfolding that very point. But here he says, it's because this is what God promised to the true son of David. This first great sermon is really about the great faithfulness of God in fulfilling those promises which he had set forth to his people, Israel, 
on display in the Lord Jesus Christ. So he cites Joel and he says, look what you're seeing here. It's the fulfillment of what God promised. And the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, that's the fulfillment of what God has promised. And what he's doing even now is he pours out his spirit and gathers and establishes and creates a reign and a kingdom, the likes of which this world has never seen because every king dies. But not this one. He says it's in fulfillment of what God has promised. This Jesus God raised up. And of this we are all witnesses. He cites Psalm 16 as the great promise that God has made to David's true heir. I will not let my Holy One see corruption. And he says this is what has happened. God promised to David's true heir an everlasting kingdom. A kingdom not like the kingdoms of this world. Israel had seen so many kingdoms of this world rise and fall. So many seemingly unshakable regimes wrought in power, wrought in might, wrought in unholy bloodlust. Who was going to make Egypt fall at the time of their imprisonment? Nobody. Nobody's bringing this kingdom to an end. It's Egypt. They're unshakable. And then they fell. Who's going to bring Assyria to an end? Nobody's going to bring Assyria to an end. Assyria is never going to fall. Look at these kings. They're veritable gods among men. Who can stop Assyria? The true and living God. When he stopped Assyria at the gates of Jerusalem and Sennacherib ran home and then died mysteriously. And Hezekiah was like, I didn't do this. Who is going to stop Nebuchadnezzar? Who is going to stop Cyrus? Who is going to stop Alexander the Great? Who is going to stop Julius Caesar? These kingdoms are unshakable. Look, they're shakable. You get the theme. They rise, they fall, because they're built by corruptible men who perish and die, even the best of them. This king doesn't. And that was God's promise, that he would reveal to the world an utterly different kingdom, ruled by an utterly different king, one who had been translated beyond corruptibility. One who sits on a throne, not just for the length of a life, but everlastingly. This God has done to our great benefit. Because the king who sits upon the throne is worthy to sit upon the throne. And that's the other reason it was possible for him, impossible for him to die. He's the holy one. Peter says that. He's going to explain that even more plainly in Acts 3 where he calls him the righteous one, the holy one, indeed the author of life. But even here he cites the value of this king in the excellency of his righteous life. Peter highlights that. He says, look, you know this Jesus. God attested to him by signs, wonders, acts of powers. You know he taught like no one has ever taught. You know he comported himself in a way that no one has ever comported himself. And this he did as the righteous one. The reason why death has no authority over him is because where there is no sin, there is no death. Death only has jurisdiction where there is sin. And so when the Holy One entered the region of death, death by virtue of justice was forced to declare, I have no right over this one. 
There is no sin in this one. I have no authority to further corruption in this one, for there is no corruption in this one. Therefore, death could not hold him. It was impossible for him to remain under the power of, of to remain in power over Christ, for there was no sin in him. If you are hauled in for interrogation by the police, I hope you're not. You can call me if you are. Probably call the lawyer first. But if you are taken in for interrogation by the police, they cannot hold you without charges. And even if they bring charges, they cannot hold you if the charges do not stand. Jesus was hauled into the interrogation room by man. And even there, Herod said, look, there's no charges. There, there are no charges. None of these charges are going to stick in a court of law, Herod said. But some hyped up lawyer said, no, no, we have a case for sure. Let's take this to cosmic trial. So they killed him and brought him before the highest court conceivable. And the judge there said, this is ridiculous. This is the only man who has ever lived who didn't deserve to die. This kangaroo court of injustice, which you are content with, is not going to stand. Live. Never to die again. For not only is he not guilty, he's righteous. And by virtue of that righteousness, he's the only one who has proper claims to dwell upon my holy mountain, where there are pleasures forevermore, the path of life opened. That's why death couldn't hold him. Because the injustice that had been wrought this day was out of accord with the righteousness of God, which says, where there's no sin, there's no death. Where there is righteousness, there is life. This is the righteous one. This is the holy one, the true heir of David, who sits upon the throne. Part of David's excellency is he fought Goliath was on display, not just in the fact that he had won victory over Goliath, but that God was vindicated as the true and living God, and that the victory he won in the vindication of his great name was also enjoyed by the people of the true and living God, secured by that champion. And so we can also consider the glory of Christ, not just in what he did, but the victory that he is bringing us to share by virtue of what he did. Consider the glory of Christ on display in what he's doing. Heidelberg Catechism 45 highlights three direct blessings tied to the resurrection. We'll highlight each of them briefly. First, by his resurrection, he makes us share in his righteousness. We are justified on the basis of Christ's work alone, not ours. And the declaration of the Father's approval of that work is on display openly in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's what Paul says plainly in Romans 4.25. He was delivered over for our transgressions. And he was raised for our justification. He was raised for our justification. 
Now, Paul has said some pretty remarkable things about justification in chapter 4 of Romans. It says that you're not justified by works of the law. Well, that's astonishing. He says you're justified by faith alone. In fact, you're justified by a faith that believes in the one who justifies the ungodly, which is an astonishing statement. Faith in the one who justifies the ungodly. And then we hear that Jesus' resurrection was for our justification. Well, what is justification? Justification is that pronouncement of righteousness based upon one's performance vis-a-vis the law. In Jesus Christ's resurrection, you have God's pronouncement of righteous upon everything that the Son has done. There's a scene in the movie, A River Runs Through It. Have you seen this movie or read the book? It's a lovely movie. A young boy is required to compose his lesson for his father, and he's required to compose this lesson unto perfection. And only once the composition is to perfection is he welcomed into the rest that his heart so intensely yearns for. An afternoon spent fly fishing with his brother in the Blackfoot River in Montana. It sounds lovely. I'm not a very good fisherman, but even I was like, oh, that does sound pleasant. But perfection stood between the boy and the rest of fly fishing. But when that perfection came upon that lesson, the father pronounced, righteous, enter into rest, as the boy and his brother ran off to enjoy the plentitude of a Montana river. The resurrection is the father's declaration of perfect upon the son's composition. The father declares very good upon the work of the son's hands, not just in fulfilling the requirements of the law, but in making satisfaction for the penalty of sin, repairing the breach between fallen sinners and a holy God, yielding his life as an atonement for sin and purchasing by his righteousness the blessedness that we had forfeited by his resurrection, which is for our justification. We have confidence that God is pleased in man, the man, Jesus Christ. So when it comes time to turn in the lesson of your life before God, what confidence do you have that the pronouncement will be perfection? He's not going to accept very good or good or even excellent. It must be perfection in the court of the Father. It must be perfection to enter into blessedness. For as Paul writes plainly, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. You can be confident, church, that there is only one such composition. And it is 
the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom you must gain an interest in order to share in the blessedness of the pronouncement, righteous, justified, live. And that's the second blessing. By his resurrection, we also share in life now. By his power, we too are already raised to new life. I'm going to read a lengthier section of scripture, and then I'm going to draw your attention to the macro movement across it. It's a well-known passage in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. If you drifted during that long passage, you proved my opening observation. That it's tough to retain your attention just with God's word. Did you drift? Probably about 50% of you did. (laughs) But that's okay, because I'm going to highlight the motion right now. It goes from dead. Right? You were dead. Were you biologically dead? No. What was the contour of that death? Sins. Trespasses. Following after the Lord of death. The prince of the power of the air. Animated by what? The spirit of disobedience, which is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So it was an animated death. Is that biological death he's talking about here? There was biological animation, but the face of that is death in terms of sins. Trespasses, following after the Lord of death and being animated by a repugnant spirit. Then what happened? Mercy, grace, more particularly making alive with the Lord Jesus Christ being raised with the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's sharing in the resurrection life of Jesus Christ, which results itself, which results in what? The opposite of the sins and the trespasses and the following after the Lord of death and the being animated by the spirit of disobedience. Now it's what? Life with Christ, faith, And walking, opposite following, where? In the good works which God prepared beforehand. Our new life is secured for us in the Lord Jesus Christ, which reflects itself in faith, hope, love. Dare we even say it in a Protestant church? Good works. 
We love good works, as long as they take their proper place in the schema of salvation, not as the foundation of our salvation, but as the evidence of a true and lively faith, as evidence that we're actually participants in the resurrection life of Christ. By his resurrection, he has secured for us new life, the opposite of following after the prince of the power of the air, the opposite of sins and trespasses, the opposite of the spirit animating disobedience, the opposite, life, faith, love in the Lord Jesus Christ. He won this for you by his resurrection. Think about the specifics of your iteration of that death life. Think about the misery that it attended. Think about how awful its aspect as you blatantly and flagrantly pursued the passions of your body and mind with no regard to God or man. Of course that's salvation, to be rescued from that and brought into life, a life characterized by faith, hope, love, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, compassion, kindness, gentleness, forgiving one another. These are signs of life, and it is excellent. But they got to take their right place, don't they? How many of you are white-knuckling it right now? <laughs> I got to be compassionate! <laughs> I'm going to be gentle. I'm going to have Christian character. If you're white knuckling it, it's going to end up in disaster for you. The only way to truly abound in Christian character is by faith. Same way you're justified. Justification, a gift comes how? By faith in Jesus Christ. New life gift comes how? Faith in Jesus Christ. For the life we now live in the flesh, we live by That was the worst symphony I'd ever conducted. <laughs> By faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, for he ever lives to make intercession for me. The living Lord now ensures that the entire riches of what he won comes to your heart and mine. Part of that is Christian life, living new life in utter distinct and contrast to the way of the old with its malice cruelty and deceit this he won for you by his resurrection truly good news and you know i'm off book because i'm over time by a lot <laughs> the last benefit is the pledge of our resurrection Christ's resurrection is a sure pledge to us of our blessed resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 and 21. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection from the dead is impossible. I said, it's impossible. I don't know how many of you watched that Lutheran satire. There's a really funny one about the two Irish guys confronting one of the new atheists. And the new atheist says, the resurrection from the dead is impossible. 
And the two Irish guys were like, yeah, that's kind of why when Jesus raised from the dead, it was a big deal. <laughs> but it's not just skeptical new atheists who look at the resurrection and say, no, that's not possible. Even Paul's church, the Corinthians are saying, is that, is that possible to be raised from the dead? And Paul says, no, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And not just for himself, but as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection from the dead. How beautiful an assertion is that. No, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. It is impossible conceived of naturally. This is why the ample attestation in Scripture is so frequently set forth as an unassailable host of witnesses. Paul's like, look, they saw it. Peter saw it. James saw it. John saw it. They all saw it. They walked with him. I saw it. He encountered me on the road to Damascus. These 500 people saw it. Look, we know it's not possible conceived of naturally, but one cannot help but speak of what they have seen and heard. We declare a resurrected Lord and one who has conquered death, not just for himself, but as the first fruits of God's new creation plan. The first fruits of God's recreative endeavor. What is a first fruit? It's a sign of things to come. It's the indication of what's going to follow. And as the head goes, so the body trails in its wake. The head subjected to gross humiliation in this life. Indeed, death on a cross, but then exalted in the resurrection, in the ascension, and at the session at God's right hand, and one day in the return to take his bride unto himself. As the head goes, so the body goes. If you have an interest in the head, you know the trajectory of your life, for you go where Christ goes, for your life is hid with Christ. And so I'll make a plea to you that's fitting face of observations of kings and kingdoms rising and falling. Put no trust in princes. Put no trust in a son of man whose breath is with him and then it's gone. Put no trust in the riches that the sons of man can give for their ability to give it ends with the termination of their life. Put your trust in the son of man who has conquered death who reigns in a kingdom that is qualitatively superior to every kingdom that has ever graced this earth. And he's a king who delights to give the gifts that he alone can give. Righteousness, joy, peace, and one day, resurrection life all in all. To the praise of the glory of this God. Let's pray. Mm. How excellent is your name in all the earth. You have made known the wonders of who you are in the Lord Jesus Christ, securing victory over that otherwise undefeatable monster of death and its bedfellow of sin until the sinless one came and conquered as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And we, the beneficiaries in this, who can declare these wonders? Even now they remain afar 
glimpsed on a horizon. Bring them home to our heart that we might live in the light of them, holding loosely the things of this world and yearning to be with you face to face. Seeing our King and our God, Jesus Christ, the one who gave himself for us, and even now gives himself for us. We pray in his name. Amen.